BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. And bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Friday, June 11th, 2021. Headline in today's New York Times. I even, there's so much news all the time. I haven't even gotten to this yet. Hunting leakers, Justice Department got Democrats data. Highly unusual tactic. Prosecutors in Trump era said to have seized files from Apple. While Trump was whining and crying every day of four years about how he was the victim of the biggest witch hunt in the world because they were prosecuting him on legitimate issues, he was, meanwhile, going through the emails of reporters and congressmen and senators. Further evidence, MAGA, that you've invested your life and your livelihoods and your political beliefs in a fraud, a grifter, and a cheat. But We'll get to that and other issues of the day with my distinguished guest, who I will now ask to introduce himself. So introduce yourself, distinguished guest. Ben, it's great to be back. I'm uh, David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University here in Chicago. I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And I'm a columnist of the week. Uh, and uh, I'm really pleased to be back here with you. Yes, it's one uh, our monthly meeting. Let's let's uh, let's make fun of some people. Yeah, okay. we make fun of people and we try to prop each other up and try to stay sane. It's always difficult <laughs> in these day and ages. Uh, before the show, we had a little uh, pre-show prep, uh, and David sent me a text from a, uh, a tweet from Andrew Yang, uh, which is so bizarre. <laughs> but uh, we'll hold off on Andrew Yang. It'll just be a little tease about National Pets Day. Uh, <laughs> Ah, oh, my goodness. You know, if if Andrew Yang were the biggest problem our democracy faced, I'd say we'd be in pretty good shape, uh, David Ferris. Uh, you mentioned your book, Time to Fight Dirty, so let's just start in the most general way. Um, Democrats, I, I'm going to need help here, uh, David Ferris. Please explain to me what the strategy is of Senator uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema senators, I should say, in regards to their endless search for bipartisanship on the part of Republicans 
there, in the case of Cinema, her open hostility to the Democratic Party. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. That tweet found its way to me where uh, she told him to fuck off. And um, her words, not mine. Uh, just quoting. And, uh, and then, of course, following that up with uh, Joe Biden placating them all. Uh, instead of forcing the issue. So help help everybody out, uh, David Ferris, with the strategy that these folks are pursuing. Well, I mean, fundamentally, their strategy is to, is to remain on the front page of the newspaper every day um, because uh, everyone else in the party is desperate to convince them to, to get on board with what they want to do. Um, and so I'm sure they're in, you know, I'm sure they're enjoying their, their moment in the spotlight, right? We, we kind of, I didn't know that cinema was going to be like this exactly, but, but we all knew Manchin was going to be like this. If the, if it was a 50, 50 Senate that he was going to be, a, he was going to be a pain in the butt and, and, um, we'd have to spend the next two years trying to twist his arm just to do basic governance, you know? And, um, it, for, for most of the last several months, I've been working on the assumption, um, that mansion and cinema want to demonstrate i guess that republicans cannot be worked with right like so they want to they, they want to put the show on and they want to have they want to have biden make a big show of a bipartisan negotiation over something and either they know it will fail and then and then they will act um or they think it will work right like it's possible that they both actually legitimately think that they're such geniuses at politics that they can get 10 Republicans on board with something that they want to pass. And that would keep the left flank of the Democratic Party on board, too. I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but um, but Senator Brian Schatz of, uh, of Hawaii um, was like, uh, by the way, I don't know if the executive branch realizes this, but they don't actually write the legislation here. Um, right. Because Biden, Biden's like, oh, oh yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. Um, and on the assumption that that the more progressive members of of the, of the House and Senate on the Democratic side will just get on board with whatever is put in front of them, because it's better than nothing, and I don't think that's actually a very good assumption either. So we're now at the point where the the left is getting really frustrated and really antsy. We want to get things done. We can't get Mansion and Cinema to budge. Um, you know, Mansion uh, will not pass. He will not vote for for HR one, the For the People Act. It's it's, it's dead in the water. Um, and the guy is such a such an attention hound, such a narcissist. I really have come to hate him. And um, he's such a he's such a I just such a just such a rat bastard. He wrote an op ed about it. Um, and the logic of the op ed did you did you see this Joe Manchin op ed? Oh, incredible. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. And, and he's like, I don't want to. I can't. We can't pass voting rights bills that are not bipartisan. We can't pass voting bills that are not bipartisan. And it's like, dude, <laughs> there are twenty three Republican legislatures right now passing party line voter suppression bills that have no democratic support whatsoever. They're aimed directly at us. They're aimed to prevent us from ever winning power again. And your position is we're just going <laughs> to sit back and take it um, and, and just wait for like, I don't know, Lisa Murkowski to re recruit nine other people who care about democracy <laughs> who don't exist right in the Republican party. Uh, so I don't know what the strategy is. You know, I mean, it's like people on, uh, on Twitter all the time, it's like, well, what's your idea to get Joe, Joe Manchin on board? I'm like, I don't have any ideas to get Joe Manchin on board. That's up to the activists, you know. And they they have they have started to run some um, some pressure campaigns in in West Virginia. Now, some people were like, 
there's not enough progressive Democrats in West Virginia to do this. I'm like, sure there are. All you need is like a hundred of them. Okay. Um, you get a hundred of them, you camp out of his camp outside of his office. Um, and, and you, and you, you know, you do, you do the street work. Um, and just, and this has worked in the past. It, it worked. It was very effective in North Carolina when they ran this weekly protest, um, about, uh, some of the anti anti-gay stuff that came out of there about 10 years ago. Um, and so while everybody, you know, we're on here on the, on the radio show, just, uh, you know, uh, just despairing, uh, pe- people need to get out and, uh, and put some actual pressure on Manchin. And that doesn't mean a primary challenge because there's no point in primary Joe Manchin, right? He's literally the only person and the only Democrat in West Virginia that could win that seat. We need to pressure Joe, like we need Joe Manchin in, in Congress, unfortunately. And we, we need to, we need to get him, we need to convince him to do what we want him to do more often. Um, and to me, the efforts to, to find 10 Republicans for anything have failed pretty spectacularly or anything that's important to our voters, right? Um, everybody's like, well, we've got this big bipartisan anti-China bill through the Senate. I was like, good for you, right? I mean, like everybody hates China right now. Okay, that's like the, <laughs> that's like the hot new fat. It's a, you know, since, since the pandemic, it's, it's just bipartisan, like, yes, China's really bad. We got to do some stuff about it. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. Like we need to, we need to improve the daily life of the American people. That's what we promised to do. Um, and until you can find time Republicans to do it, I, I don't even know what we're doing here. We just wasted three months on infrastructure negotiations. And before Biden was finally like, ah, oh, you know what, forget it. And I don't want, I don't know what the plan is now. I guess I'm going to push it through on reconciliation. Um, but, uh, and then did you, did you see this, this one rep- uh, Republican congressman from Alaska yesterday? Sorry, this is so funny. He's like just completely on his own. Him and, <laughs> him and his staff were like, "Oh, wait, wait, everybody, we got it." <laughs> I wrote a bill myself, all by myself. This is going to be the one. And I'm like, "Are we? I mean, if we're if we're letting uh, like a functionally random member of the House Minority write a, a major infrastructure bill for us? Okay, that's that's a failure of governance right there. Okay, so that we really can't allow that to go forward." Um, but, uh, you know, I, who knows? I, I don't know how long, how many times they have to be told no before Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema will, will understand that what they are doing is, is fruitless. It's pointless. It's wasting time. And, and every day that we don't pass H.R. 1, I don't think people really understand this, that you can't pass H.R. 1 like next summer um, and expect it to stop gerrymandering and expect it to stop these voters' um, suppression laws because the whole thing's going to end up contested in court anyway. Um, I think the latest you could you could redraw district lines would be early next year. They did that in Pennsylvania in 2018, but it was tight. Um, and so you're, we're running out of time, you know, because there's an August recess coming up. Um, and uh, I just don't understand what, what they, I mean, obviously Joe Manchin doesn't want to pass HR1, right? So I don't know. Somebody's got to come up with a version of HR1 that Joe Manchin would sign on to, maybe. Um, maybe if they got Murkowski on board with it. <laughs> He could say it's bipartisan and he would support it. Um, but to me, it's just it's so intellectually bankrupt to say I won't do anything that the other party doesn't agree to do with us. Because that's not really how democracy works. And, and the two parties. Can someone just show this dude a chart, um, <laughs> uh, you know, that that like looks at, at I, like the, the drifting apart of ideologies in the Senate? It's like, Joe, buddy, man, I, I you're so you're so adorable with the bipartisanship stuff. But we we don't agree on anything with these people. We just don't agree on stuff with them. So like you're wasting your time. You're wasting our time. You're wasting the first Democratic trifecta in ten years. Um, and t- you know what, buddy? 
if you think you can get stuff done, go get it done. You know, here's a week. Bring me a bill with 10 Republican signatures on it. Prove to me that you're right. Okay. And he can't do that. And I think that's actually what Biden has been doing with him, which is like, all right, man, you know, I'll let this play out to its conclusion. If you want to go try to, uh, if you want me to try to negotiate an infrastructure bill with Republicans, I'll do it. Couldn't do it. Failed. Right. Um, Republicans just wouldn't budge. Um, and uh, there, there are no negotiations about voting rights. Right? Like Republicans don't want to do anything about it because they, they fear the electorate. So I don't know. Well, uh, <laughs> you, you gave me a lot to follow up on. Uh, and I'll just uh, start by saying uh, David Ferris warned us about this at one point. And I can't remember when it was, uh, David, but I know it was before November. You uh, had you, you shared this nightmare you had, which was keeping you up at night of Joe May. <laughs> being the deciding mode. Now, Kirsten Cinema had not made it uh, to the radar yet, so we <laughs> it was just Joe Manchin, and you shared that that moment, and you know, listeners just had breakdowns of their own uh, after that show. So, before I move on to the differences between uh, the uh, For the People Act and the Infrastructure Act, and strategically uh, how Biden can uh, pursue on each. Let's just talk briefly in your in uh, in your analysis. What's the difference? <laughs> and I'm talking about political differences between Mansion and Cinema. So to help people with an approach to each of them and to understand what motivates them. So once you understand what motivates uh, a politician, then you could figure out a strategy to win them over. Uh, I've Got my own theories about uh, Mansion and uh, Cinema, but I'm curious to hear what your theories are about the differences between these two obstinate Democrats. I think that there are some. I think there are some differences on policy. You know, I think that Cinema is is at least in theory to the left of Joe Manchin on 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 democracy reform stuff. Um, I think she's to the left of him on on policy. On, on I mean, she, despite the the thumbs down and the you know the, the curtsy, she says she supports raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, which Manchin does not. So, and she's she's a co sponsor of HR one, and Joe Manchin opposes it. So fundamentally, I think what divides them is uh, is that Kirsten Sinema's cycle is slightly to the left of him, and that that shows up in the scores, um, in the ideological scores that they they put together. Um, called vote view and um so that so they have they, they have some i think f fairly minor differences in policies they're, they're they're both centrists um they're both closer to um, um the most moderate republicans in congress ideologically than they are to the center of the democratic caucus if that makes sense you know so they have more in common with susan collins than they do with like I don't, I don't know. Who, I don't know who the midpoint senator is. You know, let's say it's it's like Patty Murray or something because she's on my brain. Um, and so the, the, those are some differences. I think what what really unites them is this is this idea of bipartisanship as it's like it's like a performance for their own voters um, in their states because they. I mean, Manchin believes rightly that he needs a lot of Republican votes to win. Cinema believes, I think, wrongly that she needs a lot of Republican votes to win because I think we've, we've basically pulled even in Arizona at this point. Um, and it's, so it's a performance of bipartisanship for the, for the voters who they think need to see them reaching across the aisle if they want to get reelected in 2024. Now, first of all, Joe Manchin's going to be 77 in, 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 in 2024. Like go, you know, 
tend to your garden, my friend. You know what I mean? But uh, <laughs> but cinema definitely, I'm sure she wants to run again. Um, yeah. And so, um, and they both seem to have this genuine, I don't know if, I don't know if it's genuine on cinema's part. Um, she she just increasingly strikes me as like a fraud, but but it's I think it is genuine on Manchin's part that he believes that legislation is better if it has every you know if it has more signatures on it if it if it has buy-in from the other side. I think he believes that passing bipartisan legislation will serve to reduce partisan polarization and will will serve to reduce um, you know, all these tensions in our democracy that I think many people on the left, including me, see as a crisis. Uh, I think he sees this like an as like an irritant. Um, he sees it as a problem, right? And we see it as like an existential crisis. Um, and so you can let a problem fester for a while, but an existential crisis has to be addressed right now. Um, and so the the belief that you know the two parties working together produces better results, better legislation, and a better democracy seems pretty deeply ingrained with both of these senators. And they're not alone. I think, you know, I don't know, Diane Feinstein seems to be like this, too. Um, I don't know if you saw she went out uh, yesterday and said, uh, somebody was like, aren't you worried about our democracy? And she said, you know, I, I would be if I thought it was in jeopardy, but I just don't see it being in jeopardy right now. And it's like, Diane, I know you're, you're 9,000 years old, um, <laughs> but do you remember when a bunch of like MAGA fanatics showed up at the Capitol building and tried to murder you six months ago? Um if that's not Jeopardy, I don't know what Jeopardy is. Right? Yeah. So, you you, you know, know uh, uh, Di- it's it, just a momentary. Diane Feinstein, uh, shame on her, because I always tease, uh, you know, uh, baby boomers for not understanding where they are in the moment, but they do have a recollection of the past. And so Diane Feinstein was living in the 60s during the Jim Crow era, she knows who Dr. Martin Luther King is, was. She knows about Birmingham protests. She knows about Selma. She knows about the Edmund Pettus Bridge. She knows about the fight for the civil rights bill. These are things that baby, she's even older than a baby boomer. I think she may be greater gender, whatever she is. Yeah. She knows about it. It's, it's, it's in her bones. And for her to act as though this replication of what her generation's greatest achievement is politically, arguably, uh, if to watch this this current political movement that's dedicated to eradicating all the strides they made and to pretend as though it's not a threat is delusion. Uh, now, I have a little more confidence, uh, David, uh, perhaps than you, that that was just like a momentary murmur uh, from Diana. It will not be. Uh, <laughs> it, it will not be accompanied by a significant, like a like a mansion cinema like opposition. You know, if you put a microphone in someone, or yeah. Lord knows who controls her Twitter feed anyway. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, but yes, every Probably now one and of her then, grandchildren, I, a grand a grandchild, <laughs> I think. Right? Yeah, so like if it was a sitcom, it would be like the Michael J. Fox grandchild who's really more conservative than his <laughs> grandmother. <laughs> That's a sitcom, yeah, Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was the name of that show? I forget, I, but I saw it in the 80s. Anyway, uh, that's a tangent. Uh, family Ties. Un- family Ties. Fa- hell of a memory. It was like the hippie parents. There was something family in it. I can't remember. Uh, I love that All show. Right. That was a great show, yeah. 
<laughs> well, it, <laughs> it kind of sums up uh, Diane Feinstein. All right, so uh, let's moving. On, let's move on and talk about uh, the difference between uh, For the People Act and uh, the uh, Infrastructure Bill. I'll I'll make this uh, analysis and get your reaction. The Infrastructure Bill should be easier to pass than the For the People Act because the Infrastructure Bill is essentially the distribution of goodies to people all over the country, which politicians love to distribute so they get to cut ribbons and look good. And uh, even though Republicans are dedicated to the notion that they have to uh, sabotage Joe Biden's administration so they have to turn something that they really want and that their people really need into something evil and despicable, I guarantee you, David, that if that bill passed, they would be clipping ribbons and taking writing little op-eds in their local newspaper, taking full credit for it, while denouncing portions of it in other states, they'll be playing that game. The For the People Act's a little more problematic because it's it's attempting to undercut the central strategy of the Republican Party. And the central strategy of the Republican Party is to keep black people from voting. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. You know, it's pretty I They wanted to throw out Detroit in the last count. They literally wanted to. Th- Let's just take Detroit out of the count. So uh, your thoughts on the differences between these two bills. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, obviously, H.R. 1 is a threat to Republican power, you know, and and Republican power fundamentally right now is about preventing people from voting and exploiting their structural advantages in our ridiculous institutions. Um, And because this bill addresses both of those things, it doesn't fix them, but it addresses them. Um, you will not, you're not going to get any Republican votes for HR one because it makes, it makes it less likely that Republicans will win. Um, not because it's, it's making the system unfair, but because it's making the system fairer. Um, and the, the fairer the electoral system is the less well Republicans do in it. That's the fundamental predicament that they're in right now. Um, is they, they, uh, their policies are, are repellent to everyone under the age of 45, um, I think they have a structural disadvantage nationally of about, I don't know, 52, 48, 53, 47, something like that. Um, they're not going to win a lot of elections that are fought on a level playing field. They can win when the, when the country turns against Democrats for this or that reason. Um, but, uh, but in a neutral environment, they're going to get slaughtered. And so they, you know, they're not, they're not going to come around on this stuff, right? Like they think like, well, we benefit from the structural advantages. You know, we benefit from the electoral college. We benefit from gerrymandering. We control more state legislatures. Why should we pass this bill, right? Um, and so I, Joe Manchin can, you know, they can wait around to the end of time. They're not going to get, HR1 is not going to be a, a bipartisan bill un, unless it doesn't fix the problems. Um, and then probably going to be like, oh, great. You're not going to do anything. <laughs> this is, this bill is meaningless. All right, sign me up. This is great. Um, so whereas infrastructure is like, y- you know, people like their bridges not falling apart, right? Like that's, that's a, that's a thing that everybody can get behind It's surviving your trip across the bridge. Um, is a, is a thing you, you can like uh, bring Washington together about that. Um, and importantly, infrastructure mostly has no ideological component to it. So, um, you see all these Republican governors like rejecting the, the enhanced unemployment benefits, just like they rejected the expansion of Medicare, uh, or Medicaid right under Obama. Um, just to, you know, just a, to stick it to Obama. And B, because they're like, sorry, you want me to help the poor people? Uh, we can't do that, right? Um, and so <laughs> because the bridges help everyone, you know, like b- bridges are traversed by both rich and poor people. Um, 
I think it's more likely that you're right. They'll take they'll take the money. They'll go cut the ribbons. They'll claim credit for it. They'll put up a sign that says like your bipartisanship at work. Um, and uh, but they but they what's really shocking to me is that this would be really you know if, if we passed a, like a two trillion dollar infrastructure bill and you know, we put construction workers to work all over the country and there was this big construction boom and all this stuff it would be very popular right i mean like they would their voters would like them for it um but because they believe that anything that that's good for biden is bad for them um you know they're, they're being really stingy in the negotiations they won't go up to the level um that the biden administration wants them to go up to and uh and uh you know obviously we could just pass it on a party line vote it's not clear to me um whether mansion and cinema will do that if the if the senate parliamentarian rules that they can do this through reconciliation which we really don't know and of course you could just overrule that person with a party line vote too they have no power they're not in the constitution it's just a senate rule but uh if it comes to that they'll be like well we can't uh i mean senate parliamentarian people i'm sorry like what is the message going to be in 2022 ben we're going to go back to the voters and be like, I know you gave us all the power last year, two years ago. You gave us everything, the presidency, Congress. Um, unfortunately, we could not do anything with it. And we need you to give us a little bit more. I don't think that's a winning message. That's well, this is message to me. This this is where uh, on some levels, like uh, Ch Charles Schumer has to show what he's got. And we talked a lot over the last couple of years about Nancy Pelosi uh, when the Senate was under Republican control, and I would always be praising her, and my lefty listeners would always be ripping me for praising her. Um, but she more or less kept her caucus together uh, and um, advancing goals that were more or less in in line with what the Democratic Party stands for. All right, we could deal with the differences here and there, as my, many of my listeners will always send me articles, you know, pointing out uh, where she's kowtowing to this or that uh, industry. But the reality is she kept them together. And it's a diverse bunch she's got in the House, every bit as diverse as Chuck Schumer. So on some level, uh, David, I do believe that it's just a matter of party leaders exercising some discipline. I know it's easy for me to opine that from my attic overlooking an alley, uh, but that's what party leaders do. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I, I watch it all the time in Springfield with Michael Madigan, our, the Democratic leader, in uh, uh, Wisconsin with Robin Voss, who's the Republican leader. I see it happen all the time, party discipline. You, I don't know. You want an appointment? You want to be on this committee? You want to be on that committee? You want, what? Or do this as a favor to me. Or wh whatever they line they use, at some point, the grown-ups have to take charge, if you're following them. The coach has to take control of the team. And Democrats in Washington, except for Pelosi, don't seem to get that. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I agree, I agree 100%. I, I, uh, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago in which I said, you know, this is Joe Biden's job. It's Chuck Schumer's job. And there was a bunch of people on Twitter that yelled at me. They were like, you don't understand how things work, you know, like. It's like Chuck Schumer can't make him do anything. And I'm like, I know that. Like, obviously, he can't make him do anything. Otherwise, we'd already have HR1, right? Um, but it, but, there, but there is a sense in which no one can make him do anything. So he, he, Joe Manchin's not going to listen to me. So uh, so it is it is Chuck Schumer's job to call him into his office and to think up of a strategy uh, to, to get through to him. Um, 
And maybe that strategy is like, hey, Joe, um, nobody cared about you at all last year, right? The only thing that cared about you last year was that like the fear that you would be the pivotal vote in a 50-50 Senate. Otherwise, you, <laughs> you, know, you weren't in the news because you were in the Senate minority, right? Um, and being in the Senate minority is less fun than being in the Senate majority because in the majority, you get to do what you want in theory if you would stop it with this nonsense about the filibuster and about bipartisanship. So, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer has to convince Manchin that it will be bad, not just for Democrats, not just for democracy, but for Joe Manchin, if we don't get some things done. Um, because Joe Manchin, as much as, as much as West Virginia is a Republican stronghold, Joe Manchin needs every single Democrat in West Virginia to turn out to vote for him in 2024. Every single one of them. That's how close it's going to be. Um, and if they don't, he's going to lose anyway, right? It's a, for all of this will be, have been for nothing if he loses re-election. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know if, I, who knows? I don't even know if Manchin wants to run again. But if Manchin wants to run again, then I do think Chuck Schumer has some, at least some like rhetorical leverage over him to say, look, he, he, bring people in. I mean, have a private meeting with Manchin and Cinema to bring in, the, bring in the people that are sounding the alarm about democracy. Just like, you know, throw everything you've got at them uh, I'm, you know, I'll take your call, Chuck. If you want me to, be, I'll, I'll, I will, I will scare the pants <laughs> off of that. Um, and, uh, and, 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 tr you know, bring, bring the ghost of autocracy's future in, you know, uh, haunt, haunt them in their bed chambers. I don't know. Like tell them what's going to happen if they, if they won't budge. Right. Which is, we're going to get slaughtered next year. Mm. Um, and then Republicans are going to steal the 2024 election. Um, and maybe Manchin still doesn't believe that, but I don't know what, it, what else would he need to see? besides an insurrection and like a bunch of people running for governors and, and secretary of stateships that are saying this is what they're going to do. You know, that they say they say that they believe the 2020 election was stolen. Obviously, they're going to try to steal the 2024 election, too. So <clears throat> sorry, I get kind of worked up because I, I just I feel like the whole country is being held hostage by these two idiots. Um, and the, these two idiots happen to be in our party. Um, and it's just, it's so maddening to know that these two people could be uh, like, as, and as much as anyone could be single-handedly responsible for anything, these two people could be single-handedly responsible for ushering in the end of American democracy. And they have the power to stop it and they just will not lift their fingers. And it, apart from all that stuff, the policy too, you know, like we do need to raise the minimum wage, right? Like I know they're not going to do Medicare for all in this Congress, right? But like, lower the Medicare age, uh, do the public option. Like nobody's even talking about this policy stuff anymore because they won't act to fix the basic problems in the system, which is eliminate the filibuster, govern the country. And then we can argue about what to raise the minimum wage to. And that's where Manchin would have real leverage to, to, to bring the policy proposals closer to what he wants to do. Um, because once you say, okay, we're willing to act alone, um, we're willing to, to use our, our bare majority to, to pass laws. That's when Schumer has to, to come to Manchin and be like, okay, so what's the number that you want for the minimum wage? And he gets to name the number, right? He gets to name the number. So uh, he would have more power. He would have more power to do things if he would abolish the filibuster, reinforce democracy. Maybe you could stay in the Senate majority instead of being right back in the minority in 2023. Um, and then you're free to go get Collins and Murkowski to do whatever they want with you because they don't, because they know they can't block it either. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I could rant about Joe Manchin for a long time. Yeah. What you general. say, 
<laughs> well, no, you, you and I t- once again, he prophesied this in October. Go back and listen to it. Uh, but what you said about Susan Collins just brought back, he, he should emulate his ally, Susan Collins, because one thing Susan Collins, and I know this from having studied her political behavior for all these years, was very good at is holding out on a decision to the very end as though she was like this very serious uh, judge that's considering all the evidence. And then she will have a pronouncement, a grand pronouncement, which the whole country awaits, where she spends 15 minutes explaining why she was going to do something that in the aftermath you realize she was going to do anyway. So this whole thing was pageantry. And generally in her case, like, I, this is why I'm going to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. And 15 minute with the references to Supreme Court rulings and great, great justices of the past and her heartfelt commitment to people who've been sexually abused. And so, Manson, why can't you do that? You know, and yeah. explain how your mentor, Robert yeah. Byrd, uh, you've studied his literature. You realize that this filibuster override is not really a filibuster override it's something where, you know what i'm saying that come on if you if you want to be like susan collins be like susan all right i uh want to uh, shift gears away from uh mansion uh and cinema and talk about kamala harris and aoc before we leave so we'll start with kamala harris we've talked a lot about this during the week uh she went down to guatemala forget when it was i've lost track of time but it was in the last few days uh and she made a pronouncement uh that i the um second generation of immigrants who came to this country penniless not speaking english no one invited them for all i know they were sneaking in (laughs) on some kind of illegally obtained visas i don't know how they got here i just know they got here and i wound up here so she said don't come here and it just struck me as so, and the way, and her smugness, the way she said it, the arrogance, uh, I, it really offended me on so many levels. And yet, as I've had the show, I brought in uh, people who don't see the world exactly precisely the way I do, David, more people of the more centrist uh, persuasion were explaining to me how, what a brilliant move it was by her, how astute she is politically, and uh, once again, telling me how much I am wrong about everything. Uh, and I do this on my own show. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> so just let's pause and think about that. Uh, so your general thoughts on w- whether you found it offensive, whether you found it politically astute, take it away, David. Sure. I mean, it's not a great visual for the American vice president to go to other countries and say, don't come here, um, because I think part of our national identity is... Um, the idea that that anyone can come here and, and turn themselves into an American. And uh, it's I, one of the few things in, in the whole world that I, that I really, truly do believe in about the United States um, is that it is the easiest country in the world to, to immigrate to. doesn't mean it's easy, right? That doesn't mean the immigrants have an easy time of it here. But there are, I mean, like there are just hundreds, you know, dozens, if not all of the countries in the world are not as welcoming to immigrants as the United States, you know, like go try to immigrate to Japan. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> good luck. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, it's just something that I, I can't, I can't let go of. I can't let go of the idea that this is who we are. And so to see Harris go to, to Central America, this war torn region, uh, where people are being, are being murdered and, and persecuted and to tell them not to come here 
it's depressing. You know, it's it's depressing to know um, that that's the calculation that the administration has made, even though I know that whoever came on your show and said this is right about the public opinion about this. Okay, so um, one of the things about which I think progressive at the sort of progressive activist base is is most out of step with with sort of the median public opinion about things is immigration. And the other thing is like policing stuff. <laughs> Sorry to say it, right? Um, and that that doesn't mean that the activists should stop trying to change people's minds, right? But like you have to, at, there's a certain point at which you have to understand the political reality here, which is that there's there's no aspect of this border problem that that could possibly be good for for Biden and Harris and the Democrats. There's just it's uh, it's a problem that these countries are in such chaos uh, that people are fleeing to the United States. It's a problem for those countries. It's a problem for us because the optics are bad for Democrats. Um, people people don't want to see the border swarmed by by people fleeing violence. Um, and uh, I wish I man I wish that we were a, full of more charitable people who wanted to help everyone who shows up here. But we just we just aren't. It's just not who we are. Okay. Um, I think there's still a, I think there's still a solid majority for uh, for for immigrants and, and legal immigration and stuff. But but the reality is. This, these mass asylum seekers and, and, uh, un, and undocumented immigrants are not super popular politically. And so you always have to have one eye on the politics of something and one eye on what, what the right thing is to do. Um, and, and finding that balance is, is, is governing. And so, um, I, you know, it's, dis it's disappointing, but it's probably the right political play, honestly. Just, and uh, the other thing about this, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't help but think that Biden has given Harris the worst, like most thankless job that he could possibly have given her. You know, uh, hey, Kamala, uh, <laughs> <He just> shines <laughs> his teeth first, you know, shines his teeth. He's like, Kamala, come on in here. I uh, got it. I got, <laughs> I know exactly what I want you to do. Go solve the border crisis, you know, go solve <laughs> an unsolvable problem. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, go. <laughs> I want you to go to Central America and tell people not to come to the United States. And she's probably like, hey, Joe, like, why can't you, you know, like, why can't you do that? You know, <laughs> he's like, well, I think that Joe Biden is worried that, you know, like a like in an authoritarian system or something like that. The Harris is like a threat to him, you know, or like maybe maybe he's going to seem so old in three <laughs> years that that she's going to run against him in the primaries or something. Um <laughs> and uh, and so he wants to, yeah. you know, he wants to get her as close as possible and then destroy her, you know, and, and giving someone, giving them the portfolio, <laughs> giving someone the Central America refugee crisis drug portfolio is just like a recipe to become less popular <laughs> the minute you put your fingers on that thing. So that's my that's my pet theory I'm working with right yeah. now. Yeah, that's a great theory. And I could just see. Let's let's assume that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are, are victorious in 2024. Let's just work from that assumption or reelected, which means in 2028, uh, there will be a new presidential election, which means in 2027, we'll get to sit through some more Democratic debates over the summer, which I personally love. And I know, David, you love them as well, at which point Vice President Kamala Harris running for president will be hammered by the 20 other candidates on that stage trying to make a name for themselves by bashing her by talking about how she failed at the border <laughs> and then kamala harris we're yeah. trying to you know what i can see what sorry i i was just 
<laughs> I can just see Pete Buttigieg standing up there and like just like waiting the whole debate for it. And he's going to turn to Kamala Harris and he's going to be like, you know what, M Madam Vice President, don't don't come here with that. Don't come here. With that. Oh yeah, he's going to use he her words against he's her. Slick. You know, and his like yes. his, his smarmy little McKinsey way. He's gonna you know he's gonna put the knife in. Uh, By the way, speaking of which, you're that head of transportation. Where's that infrastructure? Mr. Mainstream, Main Street, America, Mr. I'm from Indiana. I can work with everybody. Everybody loves me because I'm America's mayor. Where are you rounding up the votes for the infrastructure bill? That was, I thought, your, part of the reason why it was such an astute. <laughs> it's such a, you know what? At some point, the process is a joke and you just have to laugh. <laughs> Well, it, it, we can laugh, but like, yeah, Pete Buttigieg is the Secretary of Transportation because people run these stunt candidacies in the primaries who, you know, they have no business running for president, but then it works. You know, like Pete Buttigieg was a mayor of like a medium-sized Indiana town, and now he's the Secretary of Transportation. Andrew Yang, who, I don't even know who Andrew Yang is, honestly. Who is this guy? But now he's like a serious contender to be mayor of New York, right? And it's all because they both ran for president and they got up on the stage and they were able to speak in front of a national audience and now they have the name ID. Um, it's it's a good strategy that we should really not allow. <laughs> like you, the party gets to set its own rules. So anyway. Yeah, that is a AOC. Uh, so I am a flag-waving supporter of AOC, but I've come to the conclusion <laughs> Uh, that we all live in lefty land and we're just patting each other on the back. Uh, and that the the people, uh, no matter how enthusiastic we are in supporting and cheering on AOC and her cohorts in the squad, the reality is, is that the rest of America, I hate to say this as a lefty, but I'm coming to this conclusion, the rest of America is just not feeling it. So we could scream even louder and we could like tweet out more and we could like like her tweets and retweet her tweets and retweet and tweet tweet and it i don't know if it's crossing over and winning people <laughs> you know like jolton joe biden was able to do with you know so help me out here david uh you're a man of the left your thoughts on if whether aoc is just speaking to the choir I mean, AOC is a, a very talented pop, uh, politician, you know, and right now she supports one district and that one district is, is, is pretty left, you know, so from, from her political perspective, I'm not sure that she's making any mistakes here. Um, what I think it's important for everyone to keep in mind, and I, I assume that your, your, your listenership is, is made up of disproportionately of, of progressive activists, right, or, or, or solid progressives, um, is to keep in mind, I'm also, I also put myself in that category. And, and for everyone that's mad at me right now, because I said Harris did the, did the smart political moves here, um, <laughs> which I understand, uh, go, do, do, go do something for me. Take something called the Pew Political Typology Quiz. Okay? Um, and it's, it's short, it'll take you five minutes. It's going to sort you into one of like uh, nine categories. Okay? Um, and there's one category that they call solid liberal, right? That's the base of the Democratic Party. Um, it is the most progressive, the most left slice of the whole electorate. Okay. And that slice of the electorate, and they've get, they've, they've administered this quiz to just a lot of people. That slice of the electorate is 15% of the public. Okay. So that's a lot of people in a country of 330 million people. That's pff, bad at math. 45 million people have the same beliefs as us. 
okay? Which is great. And, and you know, the project is to grow that number um, so that we can live in a more, a more just, more equal society. Okay, while you're in that project, what you have to understand is that your viewpoints are very different from those of the median American. Okay, there are some things that we want that are that are broad that are very popular. You know, um, minimum wage hikes, uh, taxing corporations, um, you know, uh, universal health care. Okay, to, to, don't get into the details, right? but the idea of universal health care is very popular. Um, uh, green, you know, uh, investing in green energy, all this stuff is very is very very popular. Okay? But there are a few issues where the progressive activist base, which is disproportionately made up of white people, of like white progressives, um, is out of step with other parts of the democratic base. Um, and, the, and, the, and the people that they are most out of step with, and this is something that I've, you know, this is a lesson I learned over the last four years too, okay? Um, but the thing, you know, the, the issues that they're most out of step with, I think with other elements of the democratic coalition, primarily black and Latino voters, um, are issues of immigration. They are issues of like policing and law and order and, and that kind of stuff, um, where the white progressive base of the Democratic Party um, is just it's just like way to the left of some on some of this stuff um, from other people that we need to win elections and that we, we really cannot afford to lose any more support from from Black and Latino voters or we'll, we'll really be in trouble. Um, and so this is one of those things um, where I think there's a there's a strong feeling among the progressive base uh, that, you know, whoever shows up at our border, we should take them in and help them. You know, if they're in trouble, it's like, come on in, right? Like, give me your tired, your, you know, the Statue of Liberty. And, and, and we think that that we think that everyone thinks that. Um, but the reality is that everyone does not think that. OK, the reality in this country is that the, the, there is a majority for, for legal immigration. OK, I know that asylum seeking is legal. OK, but I don't think when people wrote those laws, they imagined you know, the, the volume of requests for asylum that the United States is currently getting. Um, it is a problem, right? Because like someone has to deal with them, right? Like there has to be an institution in the United States that takes all of these asylum seekers and figures out what to do with them. Um, and the reality is, I don't think it's like super just to just throw them in a bunch of camps, like while we, while we figure out their legal status either. And, and the only alternative to dealing with them is open borders, which is like, you know, has like 5% <laughs> public approval. Okay. So the, the reality is that there has to be a process at the border. You know, there has to be a process for asylum seeking. Um, and it is possible for U.S. institutions to become overwhelmed by these processes. And you might say, well, okay, just hire more people. And it's like, uh, you know, uh, then we're right back to begging Joe Manton for money. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm not saying don't fight for more just policies at the border. I'm not saying Go go fall once again for the Republican trick of getting us to vote for for more border security and more ICE officers and all this nonsense um, that just militarizes the border and then we never get anything in return. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying you got to keep your eye on public opinion. Public opinion does not want like large numbers of Central American refugees relocating to the United States um, because Joe Biden said, "Come on in," right? Um, that's not going to play well and. Uh, and I do, I do want to stay in power. And so again, it's, it's, it's a, it's a balancing act. Um, and AOC is going to play her part in this by, by doing what, by saying what she thinks is right. And I, I, I think that, that she should just keep doing that because she's a very persuasive person. She's a very talented politician. I think, um, if she graduates to a higher office, 
she could bring public opinion along with her about some of this stuff. You know, that's that's the job of party leadership is is to, when you you know, when you think that the right thing to do is on the wrong side of public opinion. The thing to do is not necessarily to capitulate to public opinion. It's to try to it's try to move it in your direction. And you do that by signaling that the whole party is on board with whatever it is that you want to do. And then sooner or later, the rank and file will come along with you. Um, and, uh, and, and this is a case where I think Democrats are not offering much of anything in the way of a solution to this problem, right? Like, we, uh, like nobody likes kids in, in cages. Nobody likes putting people in camps. You know, I, I don't think like just sending people back home to die in, in, in El Salvador is super popular either. But I'm not seeing much in the way of like, well, what do you what's your what's your plan? You know, what is the Democratic position on immigration right now? And and that that question does not have an answer <laughs> because we're no longer talking about an immigration reform bill because Joe Manchin and um, you can't actually fix any of this stuff and without legislation. Right? Like what, what, we're, what we're asking the government to do is like is to have a bunch of executive branch solutions. To a to a real problem that's of course being blown way out of proportion by by the nutcases at Fox News and stuff, um, but but it is a problem and it's a it's a it's a policy problem, right? It needs smart people thinking about it, saying like, here's how do we you know like, what can we do to make El Salvador a place that people don't want to run away from? Um, how can we manage the the flow of of, uh, of people who want to come here? Um, can we lift the cap a little bit? Can we let a few more people in? Um, and, and what do we do for the people that that we we simply can't take? Okay, or, or you know that this is too far for the public, and how can we how can we how can we treat those people humanely? Um, and you're asking all this work to be done inside the executive branch without any change in American law, um, and it's it's really it's America's immigration laws that have to change, and that we have to sit down and and figure out what's the best way, what is the best immigration regime to have in this country? What are the what do the people coming here want? Um, many of them don't actually want to stay here forever. They they want to you know they want to make some money and, and send it home and then and then go back. Um, not probably some of the asylum seekers don't want to stay here forever either, right? Um, I mean, uh, people really overestimate the, the desire of people to leave where they're from and, and just like go somewhere else. Uh, uh, you know, like all these lists that are like best places to live in America. Like I'm just gonna like wake up tomorrow morning and be like, how about Boise? Sounds good. You know, let's buy a house there. Um, people don't people don't want to become refugees. Like they don't want to leave their country of origin. They just don't. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm ranting and raving, but I, I think that the point is. Um, Sometimes you have to accept that the thing that you think is the right thing to do, that the change that you want to see is not very popular right now. Um, and, and you have to invest in that as a long-term project. That's, that's my view of, uh, of, of police reform stuff. You know, I, I don't think we like, you know, I don't think defund the police like really hurt us very much, but it's not a popular slogan. Uh, and, and I'm sure like you, like me, your social circles are like almost exclusively progressives. <laughs> Um, who can sometimes talk themselves into things that are like, you know, I'm just like, well, that's not going to happen. You know, like I have like a prison abolitionists in my circle. Um, and it's like, I, okay, you know, <laughs> talk me into it. Um, I know prisons are terrible places, right? But uh, I don't see, you know, like, what do you do with the with the quintuple murder? Um, and anyway, it doesn't matter, right? Because like prison abolition is like a 95 to 5 issue against the prison abolitionists. Okay, so it's like you got some work to do before you expect prison abolition to be coming out of the mouths of politicians, you know? So anyway, that's where I am with all that. <laughs> all right, very good. Uh, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. <laughs>